What's up, listeners? This is your host, Daniel Schroeder, and this is the Biotech and Breweries podcast. Each episode, I'll share a beer or two from one of San Diego's best breweries with the leader from the biotech community as we try to make sense of the science behind some of the amazing biotech companies that call San Diego home. This week, I was joined by Anna Moreno from Navega Therapeutics, and we shared a few hard kombuchas from Juneshine while we talked about the source of her entrepreneurial spirit, Navega's goal of giving people an alternative pain management solution. We also talked about this mythical place called J-Labs and other topics too. Let's get to it. All right, Anna, it's good to see you. Likewise, Dan, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, cool. So I guess before we get started with questions about you and about company and what you're trying to do, first things first, we have to we have to open a drink or two here. So today I've got a couple drinks from, I guess it's a brewery, but they make hard kombucha and the, the company's called Juneshine. So I don't know if you're familiar with Juneshine or not, but... Um, first time. All right. Well, we've got two two of their hard kombuchas. We've got the acai berry and the blood orange mint, which I think are both really good. They're a little sweeter than beer. If you're not a beer drinker, this is kind of a nice alternative for sure. So go ahead if you if you have them handy. I think the way the way to do it is just to, we'll open both of them. You don't have to drink both of them, but we'll we'll be able to do like a little side by side comparison of of the two kombuchas while we while we kind of chat. So, have you ever had any other hard kombuchas at all? Or are you a kombucha drinker? Just a typical one you get at the grocery store. I'm guessing that's not hard hard kombucha, so no, never. <laughs> Probably not. And what what about like beer and other drinks? Is that something that you have an occasional drink here and there on weekends? Yeah, uh, mostly wine, I would say. Uh, beer, when there's nothing else and I have to fit in, you know? So <laughs> I, I would say yes to it. <laughs> yep, yep. More of the light beer, I would say, than yeah. the, the yeah. IPs that are well known here in San Diego. My, my wife is the same way. So we, we have hard kombuchas at our house. You know, not all the time, but um, but it's definitely a nice alternative. It's it's a much easier thing to drink, and it's uh, doesn't weigh you down the way that like an IPA would. So there's there's a few hard kombucha uh, makers here in San Diego. So it's kind of an, inter- an interesting thing to see that segment of the industry grow the way that it has. But um, so yeah, so give give them a try when you get a chance. And I'm curious. I'll get I'll ask you later on if, if you have a favorite. I guess out of the two. But yeah. All right. So I've known you for a while, but I wanted wanted to just kind of refresh myself and maybe you know ask a couple of questions that we can kind of share with the uh, with listeners that are out there. So where where are you from originally? I was born in Mexico, um, actually in the northern part, Sonora, state that borders with Arizona. Okay. Um, I moved in high school, but. Uh, as a kid, I would cross the border every day to go to school. So from kindergarten, I've been going to the school in the U.S. Okay. Was it just kind of normal for you or did it, did it seem like a little, um, did it stand out as something that was unique or, or, or difficult? Not back then. I think when you're a kid, you're very resilient. Um, you know, we would have to wake up at five to go to the border and then cross the border. And, uh, but there was a school bus. So definitely there's a few of us, uh, yeah. maybe two school buses that were full. So my parents were not the only ones that thought that oh, that was a great opportunity for their kids to learn English. Uh, so for me, it was just part of life. Uh, yep. You know, probably get home around six thirty or seven, so it was a long day. Yep. But um, yeah, that was. It, it's, I guess you're normal, right? I didn't think it was anything unique about it. So. Yep. And then, so at what point? So you obviously live in the United States now. So when when did you make the make the change and, and kind of move here permanently? Yeah. So my my dad has worked for an American company 
for you know over 35 years. So through him is where we got the chance to to move to the U.S. Um, I was you know, maybe 14. I was like just before high school. So um, that was a big change going from crossing the border to crossing the street to go to high school. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So moved in high school and um, yeah, been here ever since. Been happy here ever since. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So so growing up as a kid in Mexico was science always an interest of yours? Uh, I would say that there was never something that was really clear for me. Uh, I liked everything. I mean, my parents maybe thought I was going to be in the humanities. Uh, I loved reading. I, I learned to read by myself when I was a kid. So, you know, I was kind of all over the place. My, my brother was very obviously going to be a mechanical engineer. He started grabbing a screwdriver when he was two or three years old. Okay. Uh, but for me, it was unsure. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a slow learning about what I liked. And I, I knew I liked math and, and physics and and thinking, what, what can I, what can I do to actually, you know, help people in the future? That kind of drove me into science, uh, I would say. Yeah. And then, so obviously, you know, since you're in the U S and you're, you're kind of leading a, a company that you formed, um, you know, looking back, did, did you always have the entrepreneurial spirit when you were, when you, when you were a kid, did you think you'd own a business or be starting a business someday or how did, how did that kind of come together? Actually, I think it's a very common in general, in Mexico, that, that kind of spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, a lot of times, you know, you're an engineer, but it's, it's you know, you'll make better money as, a, you know, starting your own company or being your, your own, I guess, boss in that sense. Uh, my brother has an old, his own startup as well. My dad has always been an entrepreneur, so it kind of runs in the family. Uh, so it's always been kind of that in the back of my mind. It wasn't the idea I had going to college, but it was in the back of my mind that maybe if I come up with something, I could start a company. Um, but for me, it was always that passion of translational medicine and, and thinking about, can I build something from scratch and take it to the clinic? That's the most exciting. Yeah, no, that's, that is, I can see the excitement in that for sure. So, so, you know, with that, with that in mind, I guess, how did you decide to start Naviga? Like where did, where did that, where was that born? So, uh, I came to the San Diego to do, uh, to go to grad school. Uh, I joined Dr. Prashant Molly's lab and focus on mainly using a variant of CRISPR called DeadCas9. So I was developing a platform focused on epigenetic regulation. So what that means is that we're not permanently changing the genome, but we're modulating genes so that you still have a therapeutic effect, but you don't have, uh, you know, it's safer in the sense that it's not permanent or these mutations that, that you cause. Um, and while I was doing my PhD, I, I read about a paper about people that feel no pain that have a, a mutation in the gene called NAV1.7 that encodes a sodium channel. And it's kind of like an electricity. So the sodium channel is responsible to transmission of pain. So kind of, you know, turning on or turning off electricity, turning it on, you have this, you know, transmission of the pain, but you turn it off and it's off. Um, so I read about that and I, I told him, what if we applied our dead cast line platform to target this gene and help people with chronic pain? You know, there's huge opiate epidemic. We know that opiates are not working. That started back in 2015 as an idea that, you know, slowly but surely we got of concept in, in vivo and animal models. And that's when we got really excited. Like this could potentially be a therapeutic. Uh, so we incorporated when I was still a PhD student in 2018. And then in 2019 is when I graduated and we spun it out of UCSD, moved, moved into J-Labs. So it's been kind of natural in the sense that just, I would say luck, right? Luck and opportunity come together and that's how it, how it happened for me. Yeah. So, so that was... So it's really interesting to hear how that came together. And, and you kind of just went through the, kind of the basics of the science behind 
the, you know, the concept of, of what Naviga is trying to do. Um, so you, you made the, you kind of use the analogy of a switch. So is it, is it, uh, uh, a nerve in the body that's kind of sending, there's a switch that goes on and it's firing a signal to the brain signaling pain. Is that, is that in kind of, in essence, what, what the issue I guess could be that there's in some cases um, signals going to the brain that shouldn't be, is that part of it? That's a good point. So this sodium channel is expressed actually all over your body. So, you know, your, your skin, but the actual nerve is really long. Nerves are really long. They, they start at, let's say at your fingertip, it goes all the way into your hand, arm, and then it's and the, the cell body or where that that the, I guess the nucleus of the gene is expressed is in the spinal cord, and then it goes into your brain. So it's kind of this really long pathway where when you touch something hot, you have this uh, initial action potentials that that kind of switch on that that electricity or that signal. It goes through your finger, hand into your spine, and then it goes to your brain and it's detected as pain. Yep. So what's really interesting is that this gene it's called the gatekeeper of pain because there's two different populations of people that have mutations in this gene, people that feel no pain or people that feel extra pain. So we know that it can become a really active channel and it's just a really interesting target just because we know that we can help any kind of most kinds of pain by targeting this gene. So people that feel extra pain, I guess, currently the, the option is, for most people, the option they, they at least go with is to take pills and opioids that, that then more or less numb the entire body. So it's not isolated to just targeting in on the specific region or, or kind of zone in their body. That's, that's really the one that needs help. So is that, is that part of the thought here is that instead of, instead of having to take pills or be kind of a, and potentially become addicted to pills long-term is that there's, there's a way to treat the source as opposed to kind of numbing the, or treating the symptom, I guess. Sure. Um, so we are doing this very different in the sense that traditionally people use small molecules, which are pills. We're using gene therapy. So gene therapy, you can target the kind of cells that you're going after. For example, if someone has pain in their lumbar region, their low back pain, which I know is very common. My dad has it. It's very common uh, you know, pain. You can inject the lumbar region with this gene therapy and it'll be localized to that area. And so people will feel less pain in that, in that lumbar region. So you okay. can be more localized definitely than, than pills or small molecules that go all over the body. And I guess they would hit every single cell the same exact way. This is more targeted in that sense. So the most important fact is the fact that it's not addictive too, and, and it's long lasting. So one injection would be months of pain relief. You wouldn't have to be re-injected really often. Got it. Yeah. I think everybody knows someone or has a family member that that's trying to kind of deal with and, and live with, with pain. So I think What's, I mean, assuming things go as you hope they will, how far away are we from, uh, from your, the product being available to people that, that could really use it? We would say we're around three years away from the clinic. Um, you know, some things obviously we have to be focused on is safety. So the next steps for us are ensuring that it's safe, um, in, in larger animal models before moving into manufacturing, which is also time consuming. And then very important is talk studies. So ensuring there's no toxicity. That's why it takes a while to get into the clinic. But uh, we're really you know, excited about moving this ahead and, and helping patients with, with chronic pain. So, yep, that, that's great. And so what, what are the biggest challenges? I mean, I, I know, obviously, life science companies, there's a, there's a big need for, for money to, to get into the, the trials and kind of go through the development process for a product or, or treatment or a therapeutic in this case. 
Is that is that a big challenge for you guys, the funding piece, or are there other challenges that you're up against that that you're trying to hopefully overcome? You know, obviously, this is a very expensive endeavor. Um, so, you know, raising funding is a big part of my job, or most of it is, is talking to investors and, and raising funds. We have been actually have uh, very lucky to be uh, supported by the NIH and having a lot of support by the you know from the NIH. Um, so that's really helped us advance therapeutic. And right now we're focused on raising a larger round of funding to really enable these more expensive, uh, you know, experiments that are not covered by by grants. Um, so yeah, that's part of the challenges are those, but then all the complexity of the science, obviously, um, and ensuring that you have the best product and the safest product. Uh, but that's just a, for us. It's, that's the most exciting part is the science, obviously, in, in pushing that ahead. Yep. And and you mentioned the grants, so. Um, I know you get, that's been a big source of funding for you guys is the grants you've received, but that, and that's a, it's, it's not something that every other company you know, has even maybe explored. How, how did you guys decide to look for grant funding and what, what has that experience been like maybe in comparison to the typical venture funding? Sure. So we actually started applying for grants. I was still doing my PhD when we started applying. So we're trying to line ourselves up for, you know, the best positive possibilities to have funding. Uh, so what we did is uh, we sent two grants when, while I was doing my PhD. And by the time they get funded, it takes a while, 10 months later, we had just started at JLabs. Uh, since then, we've also been giving other, other grants as well to kind of continue with that, with that um, support. The, the biggest difference I would say is with grants, it's very focused on, you know, these are the, the goals and milestones that I want to hit with this funding. Very straightforward. It's mostly based on the science and what, what, whether they believe it makes sense and it's exciting and they, that's where you get the funding. And they're, in my opinion, uh, more open to risk, right? So if it's a riskier idea or thought, it's actually more accepted by the NIH because they know that it's not going to, it's, you know, NIH takes a lot more risk than investors do. And if it wasn't for the NIH, a lot of these risky or initial ideas wouldn't even be funded. So I would say that's the biggest uh, comparison is that Usually investors come in with, with a little bit more developed, uh, more advanced in data. So it, the NH is a, a great bridge in between de-risking the technology and the platform and, and the actual application. And then the investor comes in and kind of really helps propel that forward into the clinic. Yeah, I would guess the NIH, their motivation is to you know, put money out in ways that can maybe be for the greater good. And, and they're willing to take losses in cases and, and maybe put money into things that have a small likelihood of panning out. Whereas the, the venture world is, is very focused on returns for their investors. So the, the risk appetite, I'm sure, is a lot different between the two. That and timing. So, um, you know, usually investors are expecting returns in a certain amount of time or, or their actual fund, you know, is only a few years. So they also have to get that investment back. NIH is not expecting, and it's it's a grant, right? So they're not expecting anything back from from you, as, as as long as you can kind of demonstrate that you tried your best to hit those milestones, you can indeed get another more funding for the future, which is what happened to us recently. Um, but with you know, I've been actually part of reviewing grants, and what was really exciting is these novel ideas that are kind of out there that could potentially have a great impact. And so, yeah, definitely, like you mentioned, it's. Investors are a lot more risk averse, and it, it makes sense. Obviously, they they have different requirements. Yep. So earlier you mentioned you mentioned J Labs, which I think a lot of people in San Diego 
whether or not you're in the, the biotech community or not, you've, you've heard of J-Labs. Um, would you kind of explain what J-Labs is and kind of maybe how it's been supportive of you guys? Yeah, of course. So obviously, when you're trying to think about setting up a company, uh, there's a lot of things that come into play. It's not just the actual lab space. You have to think about infrastructure, IT, um, the actual equipment. And that's a, a really high upfront cost for a company. So what JLabs does is an incubator space where you have multiple companies sharing space. Each company rents out their own office space and lab space, but then you have common, you know, common areas for eating, for conference rooms, as well as for just equipment in general. So it's been really helpful. Obviously, we wouldn't be able to be where we, were, we are at if there was not an incubator space, unless you have that really high upfront money that would come from investors. So I think it's it's actually the same idea with NIH is kind of a nice bridge in between, you know, licensing from a university, incubating the company, and then taking that into your own rented space uh, as, a, you know, as when your series A comes in or, or whatnot. So it's, yeah, it's a great transitional space. So, uh, so does any, can anybody like take space in J labs or what's the process like to, to get in the door and, and be a resident there? Sure. So they're, you know, they're part of Janssen it's J labs from, from J and J you apply um, and you explain what your company's doing, what's the problem you're trying to solve, the impacts, and, and what's your technology. So they have to have some kind of interest and in, in, in think that this actually has some merit in, in you know, being an actual company that's going to succeed. But after that, it's, you know, it's pretty much just moving in um, and buying your whatever you need and just you know, rent. They don't take any equity in your company or whatnot. So it makes it really easy. Yep. And so if you, you guys are, you mentioned you're trying you're fundraising and raising a larger, a larger round, which should give you maybe some additional resources and, and the ability to make some changes. Would, would you move out of J labs at that point, you think, or what, what would be some of the things you do differently if you had funding? Yeah. Uh, so a big component of this is, is thinking about building out operations in the team. So we're currently a small team, uh, which has been really efficient by the, via the use obviously of, of consultants as well. Um, but then we want to grow out our operations and we'll need our own space. Um, so JLS will not have sufficient space for us once we reach that series A. Although I'm sure you've heard that, that San Diego has some issues with not having enough biotech space. So we'll see that by the time we're ready, hopefully there'll be some space for us out there. It's it's hard to believe that there's still a shortage of space based on the amount of buildings that have been converted or built for biotech right. companies. It seems like Biotech has taken over the, you know, especially like the Serrano Valley, La Jolla, um, that the Mesa kind of area. It, so it's amazing to think that there's still a shortage. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I heard it's like ninety something percent occupied already. It's um, incredible. But it's good news. Yeah. It means that there's development and, and novel uh, therapeutics coming out. Hopefully, that, that are going to help people. So yep. it's as we saw with the pandemic, right? It's biotech is definitely an important space. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think it's really, it's great for the economy to see more and more jobs, especially kind of, you know, kind of higher, edu high education, high, high, high wage type jobs. I think it's, it's great for the area. Definitely. I mean, it's also good, right? You have university and all these institutes, the Salk, Sanford Consortium, um, Scripps, and there's a lot of actually high caliber science in, in San Diego. Now it's just about bringing more investors. That's the next step. Maybe yeah. that's something to help with. <laughs> <laughs> that's I hope so. We'll see. Hopefully we'll have a couple of investors listen, listening to this and maybe they'll reach out to you afterwards. That, that'd be great. Um, all right. So, so, you know, 20 years down the road from now, let's say you've, you've raised money. Now everything kind of comes together as you want to for um, the pain therapy through Navica. 
what what is the like what would the 20 year you know retirement life look like what what's how do you envision that if everything goes well i mean obviously it could become a very lucrative uh end game for you is that is that something that, that kind of is part of the motivation or what how do you how do you view your future i mean i i've always heard this and and people always say that you become a serial entrepreneur and i think it's it's true i mean you're so used to always being doing a lot of things at once and being so busy and it's just so exciting to be in this you know fast-paced community I think after Navega, um, who knows if it's going to be 20 years, uh, you know, probably going to be less. And then most likely will be part of a different company, potentially thinking about joining boards. I also would be interested maybe in, in thinking about biotech in other countries and seeing whether we can help there. Um, so my, my partner is Spanish. I'm, I'm from Mexico. You know, there's definitely a lot of need in, in those communities for uh, biotech and, and biotech people that have some experience in that space and investments as well. So Maybe I'll invest in a startup there. Who knows, right? And, and help run another startup in, in one of these countries. Yeah. Is there is there much of a biotech community in Mexico? I guess it's it's so close to us here in San Diego, but you don't hear about it that often. No, I would say there's not. Um, unfortunately, you know, I was actually really lucky to have uh, a fellowship from the Mexican government to help out with grad school, but that's not recently the the interest of the government. So. Uh, let's see. Hopefully, there's more investment in science as as we move along. Um, it's obviously very important. Yep. So we're, we're now, I guess, what, 16, 17 months into, into COVID, which has been a game changer for a lot of people. There's maybe been some silver linings, though, that have come with it. Um, what, what, how has that changed things for, for you and for Navega? And, and are there any silver linings that you found kind of as a result? Yeah, I mean, we did close down in the beginning when we were really sure of what was going on and, and trying to protect the, the uh, you know, employees at Navega. Um, I think the biggest challenge has been actually getting supplies, right? The supply chain. Um, we asked for a specific kind of flask to grow cells in, and I think it took them since January. We just got them a few weeks ago. Wow. Um, so everything is bad luck. Uh, we learned that apparently there's like 40% less drivers than there used to be. Okay. So a lot of shortage in, in that area, um, you know, in the biotech. So it is at pushing behind a lot of timelines for a lot of people. And I mean, I guess the silver lining is that we've all learned to work well at home and, and on Zoom. I think everyone can relate that we're getting better at online chats. Like today, we're getting really comfortable. Yep. And it's probably more awkward in the beginning. Yeah. Um, so I guess it's always a silver lining that I think we're, we're learning that people can start hiring people that might not live in Diego, right? Or can come part-time or a few times out of the year. Um, so I think that's the, the most helpful and, and talking to investors from all over the world it probably wouldn't be possible um, if it wasn't for kind of I guess the COVID, right? People got a lot more comfortable in talking to uh, potential investors or investees online. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing to think back. If you'd told me two years ago, like anytime there was like a video conference or anything like that, FaceTime with a friend, even I would always be very hesitant to turn my camera on thinking like, oh, this is so weird to have like my camera on. Like, I don't know if I'm wearing the right shirt or, or whatever okay. it was. So it's, it's funny now that two years later, it's such a common thing where, you know, a lot of times you'll see, you'll be on Zoom and people will have like be in their workout clothes and maybe like still have sweat kind of going down their cheek and they're it's just everyone's so much more comfortable with it. That that and then the other part to it too is like having kids around and kids in the background or dogs barking and I think there's an element of everybody feeling and kind of seeming more human um, by just kind of letting people see what they're like in real life as opposed to them kind of being in their more professional setting and being able to kind of leave all that behind. 
That's a really good point about, you know, the real, you know, behind the scenes, I guess, yeah. like children or the construction going around where they live or, yeah. um, and just kind of going with it and not being embarrassed by it. I mean, just accepting people for who they are. I, that's a, a good silver lining that you mentioned on your side. Yeah. Um, so before I get your opinion on the two drinks, um, just before we change subjects here, I guess, is there anything else about Navega or about, you know, you or about the, the life science community here in San Diego that you think she, people should be aware of? I'm, you know, I'm sure you've seen, there's a lot, been a lot of transactions happening lately in San Diego. So I think that's a really exciting time just to be in this space. Um, we are hiring. So if anyone's interested in joining, you know, be happy to reach out to me and yeah, just happy to be here. I think, um, if I had a choice, I wouldn't be anywhere else in the U.S., to be honest. I think it's perfect space for us. So, yep. That's great. So hashtag I'm hiring is what I heard. Yeah. Uh, we'll, make <laughs> exactly. sure, we'll make sure to get the word out. Thanks. Um, all right. And so now back to the, the worst part of the of the show here. What did you get a chance to try both of the drinks? OK, so I did. Maybe I'll tell you, Barry, do, do you have a favorite or any any feedback on what hard kombucha is like for a first timer? I think they're really delicious, actually. I mean. It's like you're drinking any juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of a little dangerous almost because it's like you don't really feel guilty drinking it, and exactly. it feels light. I, um, I like that. I say I say very more, but I would say the blood orange is definitely a surprise. With okay. Blood orange. Yeah. Juice, it's like a. I wouldn't pick one over the other. Okay. I would be happy to have right. both of the fridge. What about you? Um, you know, my wife and I like the, the blood orange mint. It's like a much, it's co- more common. So if you go to some restaurants, they'll even have it like on tap as an option, as an option. I didn't know that. Um, I haven't had the acai berry as often, but I think it's all, I agree with you though. I think they're both, they're both really good. Yeah. And they're both low sugar and there's, there's 6% alcohol. So you have to kind of be careful when you're, when you're drinking <laughs> them, but all right. Depending on the time of the day. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I guess it's important to do these podcasts in the, in the afternoon. That's so true. I'm going to go back to work afterwards. I do, afterwards. Yeah. I do have to work after this. So I'll, <laughs> I'll stop after a few sips. Yeah. All right. Well, it'd be a good time for an investor call, I guess, maybe after having right. a drink or two. <laughs> That's true. All right. Well, Anna, it's been a pleasure having you on. It's good to, good to catch up. Um, thank you again for doing this and uh, hopefully we get to see each other in person again soon. Sounds great. Likewise. Right. Thank you. Thanks. That's a wrap. To stay in the loop on future episodes and to become an official supporter, please visit biotechandbreweries.com. I hope we'll see you next time.